being said, we're very grateful both to Peter and indirectly to yourselves at Charlotte Baptist Chapel because you've made Peter and Nita available to serve with the Bible translators at different points. You probably don't remember, but six years ago, Peter and Nita made a visit to Ivory Coast to lead a spiritual retreat. At that point, I was branch director for the Wycliffe work in Ivory Coast and Mali. And within three months before their visit, we'd had a military coup in what had been till then the most stable country in sub-Saharan Africa, and I'd had to lead our group through that. And then a month later, there'd been an aeroplane crash in which our supervisor and his wife, who'd been visiting with us, were killed. And it was a stressful enough job, and you put those two together, and Sue and I were at the end of our tether. And Peter and Nita came and led a retreat, and they sat with us, and they talked with us, and they made us realise that the world wasn't about to come to an end, and we're very, very grateful to you for making them available, not just to be pastors, but to be friends to missionaries around the world who need the sort of ministry they can bring. So, at the risk of being nice, which I really don't like to be with such good friends, thank you very much, Peter and Nita, for being around, and thank you to you for making them available. Now, I don't know if you have any cynics in this church, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands if you are cynical, but... I'm sure there are those of you who said, oh, it's a missionary weekend, either in the morning or in the evening, he's going to preach on Matthew chapter 28. Well, if you're a cynic who was thinking that, you're wrong. Because I'm going to preach on that passage both in the morning and in the evening, (laughs) just to confound you. So if you'd like to turn with me to Matthew chapter 28, if you're looking at one of the few Bibles, we're on page 1001. Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And truly I am with you always to the very end of the age. Truly I am with you always to the very end of the age. That means he's here. So let's pray to him. Lord God, by your Holy Spirit, you caused Matthew to write these words down. And we just ask that by the same Spirit, you would make the words on the page alive in our hearts, so that our lives are changed and we become more like you and that we serve you more faithfully, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Matthew's Gospel tells us very, very little about what happened after the resurrection. If you just look at the earlier part of the chapter there, we have the resurrection as the first section. We have the guards being told, basically, lie. Don't tell what really happened, just go and give a false report. And then we go straight on to... This passage, which is given as Jesus ascends to heaven. Now, Luke's got, by reading Luke's Gospel and others, we know that there was actually a few weeks between those events. So Matthew is not giving us a lot of detail. But what he gives us 
is therefore very important. And we see this scene. Jesus is on the mountain and the disciples come to meet him. They go up there to see him. The disciples didn't know what was about to happen. In fact, if you read, I didn't know what was about to happen either. If you read Luke's Gospel, in this passage, the, the parallel, the disciples actually thought that Jesus was about to set up a kingdom on the earth. They believed that he was about to kick the Romans out of Palestine and establish a human kingdom. They still hadn't really understood what Jesus is all about. But when they got to the mountaintop, when they saw him, what happened? When they saw him, they worshipped. But some doubted. Just think about that for a minute. Some doubted. Isn't it remarkable that the Bible puts that in there? Now we know from human nature that when you had a group of people who were going to see Jesus, still they'd seen him crucified, some were bound to doubt. It's just human nature. But if you or I had been writing this book, we wouldn't have put that in because we'd want to give a positive spin on the message. But when Matthew writes this down, he tells us the truth. And we can trust the Bible because it is truthful. And it fits with what we know. Just compare this to a statement from a football club chairman. Of course, we are 100% behind the manager. What does that mean? It means he's going to be sacked next week. Our politicians, football club managers, advertisers, they spend all their lives trying to convince us that things are different to they truly are. The Bible is honest and truthful. And when some doubted, the Bible tells us that. But I don't want to spend time on those people, but just remind you that this book is trustworthy. It's trustworthy because it tells the truth. But what I really want to do is to concentrate not on the ones who doubted, but on the ones who worshipped Jesus. Here we are. It's a pivotal moment in the history of the church. Jesus' earthly ministry is drawing to a close. And he's about to commission his disciples to spread this message right around the world. And what do they do? They stop and they have a worship service. What were they thinking of? They had a job to get on with, and yet they stop and they worship. Now, it all seems wrong. Why didn't they get on with a job in hand? What I'd like to suggest is that what the disciples did was exactly the right thing to do. And in fact, it's exactly what we're going to do. This is the missionary weekend, mission weekend, but we're not going to talk about mission for the next 20 minutes. We're going to talk about worship, about movement towards God. And I'd like to do that for three reasons. Firstly, worship is actually the start of mission. Worship is the start of mission. And then, if worship is the start of mission, worship is also the end of mission. Worship is the end of mission. And then lastly, worship leads us to the heart of mission. Worship leads us to the heart of mission. So I'd like to just develop these three themes. Because before you start mission, you must start with worship. So worship is the start of mission first title. 
If you're a Christian, then by definition, you have had a first-hand encounter with the living God. You've come to know him. You know that you're not worthy of his favour. You know that there's nothing you can do to earn his love and his grace. But you also know that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, you've been brought close to him. You've been forgiven. You've been given fellowship with him. And the natural response of that relationship, the natural response to what God has done for us, is worship. It's to thank him. And the other natural response to it is mission. It's to tell people about it. If you've had, if you have a living relationship with God, you can't stop thanking him for it. And if you've truly had a living relationship with God, you'll want to tell other people about it. A heart relationship with God results in mission and results in worship. But we can also turn that round and we can say that mission and worship can't truly happen without a heart experience of God. A heart experience of God leads us into worship and leads us into mission. But without that heart experience of God, you can't have true worship or true mission. You see, mission must be based on a life of worship. Mission must be based on a life of worship. If we don't have a real live experience of God in our lives, if we aren't moved to mission, to worship and adoration, then any mission that we do, any evangelism, will be sterile. It won't be real. It'll be coming out of something other than a living relationship with God. You see, Christian mission isn't about an intellectual exercise of convincing people to believe certain truths. Now, there is a place for an intellectual convincing. There is a time for that. But that's not the heart of Christian mission. Christian mission isn't trying to get people to follow a religion, to follow a set of rules, to turn up to church on Sundays. Christian mission is about bringing people into a living relationship with the person, Jesus Christ. Christian mission is about Jesus and about drawing people to know him and to experience his love and his grace. And the only way that we can enthusiastically and realistically do that is if we have that living relationship ourselves. Mission must be based on a relationship with Christ and on a life of grateful worship. If it isn't, it's ultimately barren. Secondly, on this topic, mission isn't an excuse for avoiding worship. You know, intimacy with God is not comfortable. It's great. I mean, I enjoyed the music this morning. I'm of the 70s generation. The faster the beat goes, the happier I am. It's not everybody's style of music but it's easy to sing it's easy to get enthusiastic clap your hands raise your hands whatever or stand silently and stoically but move deeply it's very easy to worship and to get enthusiastic about church service about being together with a group of people it's a wonderful thing but true intimacy with God 
forces us not just to be enthusiastic, but to look at our lives. When we're close to God and exposed to his holiness, we are aware of our own failings. And that isn't easy. It isn't nice. We don't like it. And so it's very easy to find ways to have the appearance of Christian life while avoiding close intimacy with Jesus. Now, if any of you would like hints on how to do this, on how to give the appearance of being a Christian and being enthusiastic while not being, I've got some ideas for you. Without wishing to be rude to anyone, working on a sound desk in a church can be a good way to do it. I've seen it happen. You come to church, you're involved, you're moving things, dials and knobs, you're having a great time, you're serving everybody, people think you're being great, but actually in your heart you're managing to avoid listening to the sermon because you're using the sound desk. Being a musician is equally a good way to do it because you're playing the guitar, you're thinking about which chord to play next, you don't have to think about the words. Preaching is a great way to do it because you're concentrating on how is this going to affect the lives of the congregation? How is the Lord going to change them through the word? Keeping yourself out of it. Christian service is one of the most effective ways I know of keeping God at a distance. And please, on the sound desk, I don't know any of you well enough to be actually making comments about you, so do forgive me, likewise musicians. But any of us who are involved in regular Christian service know this temptation. Christian service is one of the best ways of keeping God at a distance. But mission is not an excuse for avoiding worship. It's very tempting to get involved in mission work. It's very tempting to get involved in supporting mission as a way of actually keeping God at a distance. Well, I don't really need to go to the, prayer, the mission prayer meeting because I give a standing order to support Wycliffe Bible translators, so I don't need to pray. It's easy to think like that. It's easy to use the fact that you have a, you're known to be part of some sort of support network to keep God and to keep intimacy with God at a distance. Mission is not an excuse for avoiding worship. But worship must, in the end, produce mission. Worship must produce mission. It's very simple. Dead simple. If you are truly worshipping God, then you will be interested in mission. Be it mission to Rose Street, or be it mission to Shanghai. If you are worshipping God, you will want to be involved in mission for two reasons. Firstly, if you tr are truly worshipping God, you want more people there so the noise is louder. You know that what you can do, the worship you can bring isn't enough. You want to get crowds in to join. Worship results in mission because you want more people worshipping God. And the other thing is that if you're truly worshipping God, you know what a blessing it is for yourself. And so you want others to share in that blessing of worshipping God. Worship must end in mission. Worship is the start of mission. That's where we start when we come to Christian mission. But not only is worship the start of mission, it's also the end of mission. There we are. Acts chapter 28. 
the disciples are on the hill and Jesus commissions them to go out and serve him. The beginning of the church, it starts with a little worship service, 12 people who were probably all born within a few miles of each other, worshipping Christ. Turn to Revelation chapter 7. It's on the screen, so you don't need to turn if you don't want to. Here is the end of the church. The church starts with a tiny little worship service. And now where does mission end? Mission starts with worship. Revelation 7, mission ends with worship. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. A little worship service kicks off mission. A huge number, a crowd from every nation, tribe and tongue around the world draws mission to a close. The church was born in worship and it will find its final existence in this everlasting song of praise to the Lamb. There will be a time when we no longer need to evangelise. There will be a time when missionaries are unemployed. But there will always be worship. Good news for you guys. You will never be unemployed in heaven. I'm going to have to learn to play an instrument. Because as a missionary, my job will one day be done. But as worshippers, our day will never be done. John Piper puts this beautifully. Many of you will know this quote. Missions is the is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Worship is ultimate, not missions. Because God is ultimate, not man. When this age is over, and the countless millions of redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. But worship abides forever. Worship is ultimate, Because worship is all about God. Missions is temporary. Because missions is about man. One day, mission work will end. And it will end in an everlasting song of praise. Worship is the start of mission. Worship is the end of mission. But worship also leads us us right into the heart of mission. When they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. The disciples saw Jesus and they started worshipping him. What did Jesus do? He didn't sort of come over all bashful and say, Oh, get off, stop that, will you? But look, 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 stop, stop, don't, don't. He responded by, to their worship by saying, All authority on heaven and earth is given to me. In other words, he was acknowledging that when they worshipped him, they were doing the right thing. When you worship me, that's correct. Because all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, says Jesus. The disciples were doing the right thing in worshipping. And Jesus is underlying a simple point that the disciples had only just really started to grasp. And that is, that this man that they'd known from their childhood was actually God. And the disciples are just getting their grasps with this. That this person is really God. Now as Christians, that's a truth that we're very familiar with. Jesus is God. But just reflect a minute. Just let your mind wander. 
What was it like for God to live on this planet? We sometimes sort of have very rosy childhood images, Sunday school images, of Jesus as a boy, the perfect boyhood in Nazareth. Jesus was the son, was God incarnate. He was different. He was perfect. What are kids like with other children who are difficult, who are different? They tease them mercilessly. You remember the odd, odd one out at school? What happened? It's sometimes embarrassing to think back how we teased people. Children are not always as kind as we think. Jesus spent his whole childhood, unless children have changed, and I don't think they have, being teased. He then, as an adult, wandered homelessly, was persecuted, and finally he went through a mockery of a trial and was executed. All for us. That's what Jesus did. That's what it means to be God on this earth. To be a perpetual stranger. To be a perpetual outcast. For the whole of his life here. He did it. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Who being in very nature God. Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus came to earth, he lived, died and rose again to bring us back to God. And this is the very heart of mission. Jesus, God, crossed cultures, crossed boundaries to bring us back to God. Jesus himself, as God incarnate on the earth, was a cross-cultural missionary. Seeing our need, God came to us to sort things out. He didn't wait for us to fix the problem because he knew we couldn't. He was proactive. And the reason why he wants us to go to the ends of the earth with his message is because that's the sort of God he is. That's the sort of thing he does. He crossed boundaries by becoming a man. And he wants us, as his people, to cross boundaries. John 20, 21 reads, next slide. Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Why do we send missionaries? We send missionaries because the Father sent Jesus. The heart of mission lies in what Jesus Christ himself did. Let me just put on my Wycliffe hat for a minute and to think about Bible translation. Now, I'm sure as you've heard things about Bible translation and um, perhaps you reflected as, as Walter was speaking this morning, people have said, wouldn't it be easier just to teach people to speak English? I won't ask for hands up for that, but it's a natural question. Isn't it easier to teach people to speak English or French or some national language rather than translating the Bible into small languages? And then, if you know any translators, they will answer that by saying, well, that's true. But people's heart language is really what they need. And they will tell you, even if people seem to speak a language fluently, they speak language in different domains. They might speak English very well in the market, 
but that doesn't mean they can deal with spiritual truth in the language. And people will answer by giving lots of good reasons why it's important to translate the Bible because people don't understand it otherwise. But can I say, with all due respect, that's the wrong answer. The reason why it's important to translate the scriptures into other languages isn't so that people will understand better, though that is vitally important. The reason why it is important to cross cultures and to translate the gospel into new languages is because that is the sort of God we serve. The heart of Bible translation isn't about effective communication. The heart of Bible translation is about a God who crosses cultures himself and as he sent his son so he sends us the heart of mission the heart of Bible translation is doing what Jesus did that's what God is like that's what God is that's what God does turn with me to Acts chapter 2 again it will appear on the screen they were staying in Jerusalem God fearing Jews from every nation under heaven when they heard this sound, the crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Right at the start of Christian mission, God makes it possible by a miraculous work of his spirit for people to understand the message in different languages. The very first miracle that the Holy Spirit performs in the book of Acts through the disciples is so that people will hear the message in multiple languages because that's the sort of God we have. That's the sort of God he is. Sometimes people will tell you that this passage in Acts is a reversal of the Tower of Babel. At the Tower of Babel, human language was divided and split and then the Holy Spirit came and drew it all back together again. Oh, no, he didn't. Read it carefully. The Holy Spirit comes, and what does he do? He doesn't make everyone in the crowd understand in one language. He makes everyone in the crowd understand in their separate languages. Peter was preaching in Aramaic, presumably, but everyone understood in different languages and different places. And by his very first miracle, God underlines that every language on the planet, every culture on the planet, is a vehicle for his message. Is a possible and true vehicle for his message. Just in closing, why might that be? Why is it good? Why does God want every language as a vehicle for his message? I don't know what you had for breakfast this morning. But some of you might have had some of those flaky, buttery rolls, that sort of moon shape, half moon shape that they do in France. Croissant. I don't know, anybody had croissant? Flaky, buttery, half moon shaped rolls don't taste anywhere near as good as croissant. Because we use the word in French, it carries something extra. Different languages carry and seize something that other languages don't do as well. Different cultures reflect some things that other cultures don't catch. It's why we choose to use foreign words in English, because the English word just doesn't quite do. And it's why foreign people in other languages use some English words, because their word doesn't quite do. Different cultures 
get different handle on reality and show things. And our God is so big that no one human culture can capture everything about him. But the choir of all the assembled human voices together, different cultures and different languages, draws together and shows just how majestic our God is. Just imagine. um, Revelation chapter 7. We read it earlier. The choir singing to the Lamb. We're not all going to be singing the same song. Over in the back corner there, there's a Welsh male voice choir. And the deep bass notes are showing the power and majesty of God. Over there, in that corner, there are actually some medieval monks. And they're singing in plain song. And they're capturing something about the mystery of a God who, yet so mighty, could be made a little baby in Bethlehem. They're not reflecting the majesty and strength of God as well as the Welsh in that corner, but they're capturing something of the mystery of a God who is so hard for us to understand. And then down near the front, there's a group from Africa. And the drums are sounding and they're dancing and they're capturing the joy that happened on the morning of creation when God spoke and trees and flowers and animals sprung into place. And the wonder of their dancing and their joy is capturing that. And together, all of the different voices, all of the different cultures are showing just what our great God is and how wonderful he is in a way that none of us could ever have done on our own. And that is why the final act of the church is worship. From all languages, tribes, tongues and nations to show the majesty of our God. Just one closing thought, one closing application. I'm not asking you to actually answer this question, not to me anyway. But is your life characterised by mission and by worship? Let's pray together. Lord God, you are remarkable because you came down to us. You saw our need and you came and you met that need and we thank you. And we just ask, Lord, that you would help us as individuals to respond appropriately in worship and in mission. For your name's sake. Amen.